0: By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter.
1: Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay. In this week's episode, we're going to explore a story that centers around three men, two of whom you've probably heard of and one of whom you haven't. The first is financier and sex criminal Jeffrey Epstein. The second is New Yorker journalist Ronan Farrow. And the third is former MIT Media Lab fundraiser Peter Cohen. This is the story of how Epstein's money tainted a whole university and about how Farrow's flawed reporting on the ensuing scandal at MIT smeared the reputation of Cohen, a mild-mannered middle-aged school official who never expected to get his name in the headlines. And it's a story that, in some ways, could happen to any of us because it shows how media narratives, even flawed ones, are hard to erase once they've been created. What's more, even famous journalists The ones who tell us they're trying to hold the elite to account can themselves evade accountability when they fear for their own reputations. On July 6, 2020, Peter Cohen told his story in detail in a Quillette article entitled Jeffrey Epstein's Money Tainted My Workplace, Then Ronan Farrow's Botched Reporting Trashed My Reputation. And full disclosure, I served as editor on that article. Following its publication, he joined me to discuss what he's learned about university fundraising, the MIT Media Lab, Jeffrey Epstein, and Ronan Farrow. Here are excerpts from our conversation. Is it well known in the fundraising community that there is this small subculture of people
2: who don't have the best reputations, and this is kind of part of their PR effort? Right. Well, Epstein is obviously an extreme case. And I think in retrospect, everyone's agreed that MIT should not have taken Epstein's money and in fact, and so there's certain donors who have totally unblemished reputations, but that's certainly not enough for any nonprofit or charitable organization to survive on. And so there are certain donors who people might say that the industry that they work in is tainted. Those people are often contributors, and so there's definitely a gray area. One
1: thing I learned from editing your piece is just how much staff and how much attention many of these universities dedicate to fundraising. Why, in addition to the enormous tuitions that they charge, why do they spend so much time raising funds, especially since their endowment funds, in the case of elite universities, are often measured in the billions of dollars?
2: Well, for one reason is even for universities that have high tuition, the tuition doesn't even cover the cost of a student's education. And at a place like MIT, there are enormous research expenses, and a lot of that is paid for by government grants, but the rest of it is paid for through philanthropy. Sometimes you need startup costs paid for, by which I mean you need to build a lab, or you need to build a building, or you need to recruit a new professor. And that's often where philanthropic support comes in. And so tuition may seem sky high, but the reality is it's really not sufficient to run a major research university.
1: Your involvement as a fundraiser wasn't just for MIT full stop. It was for the MIT Media Lab. This highly ambitious fusion of art and
2: engineering and science, is that right? Could you describe it for listeners? Sure. The Media Lab was formed in the 1980s by two people, Nicholas Negroponte, who was an architect, and Jerry Wiesner, who was the president of MIT, and the initial focus of the Media Lab was on interactive communication technology. It's both a lab and a degree-granting program, which is unusual for MIT, and the claim was that they were inventing the future, which means they would work on far-out projects that nobody else was working on, and they would play with them for a while, and then if there was a possibility of commercializing something, the Media Lab has always had a lot of corporate sponsors And the assumption was that a corporate sponsor could take it into research and development and turn it into a product. The Media Lab liked to say it attracted the misfits, meaning both faculty and students that would not have fit very well in another department. It was free tuition. They offered a master's degree and a doctoral degree in media arts and sciences. And then they also had a lot of MIT undergraduates who would come and would do research there even though they weren't getting a degree from them. People, while I was at the Media Lab, were doing work around learning and education. They were doing work around how computers can detect emotion. There was one faculty member who was doing some work around things that weren't even scientifically possible, but she was a designer and a video maker, and so she would make videos about things that could not be achieved scientifically. It's probably not people that would have survived in other parts of MIT, but they would come to the Media Lab. The focus was always on the intersection of science, engineering, and design. Was the Media Lab in some ways, or is the Media Lab sort of
1: a loss leader for the school in that it brings in money and attention, and some of that money and attention can then be deployed to other parts of the school?
2: Well, it was a great place to visit. And what I was talking about in my article is that Folks who came in from out of town, a lot of them had heard of the Media Lab, and they wanted to see it. So they would come, we would give them a tour. The Media Lab was very good at visual presentation, which means there were a lot of things to see. And we would have many tours daily, and some of these would involve donors. And often the donors were supporting other parts of MIT, but they wanted to see the Media Lab. Part of my job was to interface with my colleagues who worked in MIT's central development office when they wanted to show their donors around. It was a little bit controversial because the Media Lab did have its own donors, and it also had its own corporate sponsors, and we wanted to give them prime access to what was going on. So a lot of visits from people that weren't going to end up supporting the Media Lab eventually became a little controversial.
1: Much of your work, not all of it, but much of your work was behind-the-scenes work in fundraising and helping to process donations and also to sustain relationships and sometimes meet-and-greet work with donors. But your actual pressing the flesh, as it were, or your meetings with Jeffrey Epstein were very few and perfunctory. Still, you did have one very telling in terms of his personality and
2: creepiness. Could you describe that? Sure. So the first time I met Jeffrey Epstein was in my first year at the Media Lab. And I was at the TED conference. There's all these little TEDx's around the world now. But the big TED is once a year, and it's in Vancouver now. And Epstein would go every year. He actually did not attend the actual conference because it wasn't open to anyone. You had to be admitted. But he would attend and meet with people privately, and he would often sit in the lounge of one of the hotels and people would come to him. And so my boss, Joey Ito, had met Epstein a year earlier and suggested I try to get a meeting with Epstein. And so I emailed him and we sat down for a couple of minutes in the lounge of the Fairmont Pacific Rim in Vancouver. And we talked and I wouldn't say it was a very interesting or successful conversation. The person who had the relationship with Jeffrey Epstein was really my boss, Joey Ito. And for the most part, I, as you said, was the the behind-the-scenes guy. Money would come in from Epstein, and my job was to help with the processing of that money and to make sure it went to the parts of MIT where it was supposed to go. So I wouldn't say that he and I hit it off.
1: No, you didn't hit it off. In fact, he seemed quite bored with you, and I urge people to enjoy your description of it because you were very deadpan about the way you described it especially the way he ended it, because basically a much more famous
2: person walked by and you were summarily dismissed. Right. The thing about Ted is there were all sorts of CEOs and wealthy people there each year. And so I got a few minutes with Jeffrey Epstein and he had two young women with him who he said were his assistants. And then, as you said, somebody more interesting walked by and that was the end of my time with him. And then I saw him once or twice later when he visited the media lab. But what was weird
1: is this detail where he had these two young women, one on each arm, as it were. You were careful to say they didn't look like they were under 18, but they look very young. Here's a guy who's trying to rehabilitate his reputation. Presumably, it's one of the reasons he's at TED and one of the reasons he's giving money to prestigious institutions like MIT.
2: Why would he bring young women to a public forum like this? Well, that's a good question because he would also, when he came to the media lab, he brought young women as well, who he said were his assistants. Part of this, I'm just speculating, but I've read a lot of books and articles about Jeffrey Epstein now. And I think he wanted people to see him getting away with things. And so, I mean, he wanted people to know that he was at TED. It wasn't like he was in a room. He was in the lounge. And he wanted people to see him with young women. I think it was just part of the way he operated. He was conspicuous, and he was well-known, and even though he couldn't get into the actual conference, he was a presence there. Let's go back to the institutional context, because you mentioned somebody in passing,
1: and we have to talk about this person, the good and the bad. So the person is Joy Ito, and Joy Ito headed up the Media Lab at the time you were there. And in a way, he embodies some of those positive qualities you were talking about in regard to the Media Lab. He was outside the box. He had an unusual background. He was very passionate about technology. And he had a very idealistic vision for finding talent, including a theory of forgiveness and redemption. You mentioned in your article, at least one of the people working at the Media Lab was somebody who had committed a very serious and deadly crime, but who had reformed their life and Joyito believed in them. On the other hand. He also very much took seriously his role as a fundraiser, and it sounds like everyone at a certain level at the university has an implicit role as a fundraiser, and that caused him to overlook some obvious red red flags with, with Epstein.
2: Joey Ito was definitely an unconventional pick for MIT, but probably a very good pick for the Media Lab because it was such an unconventional place. He never finished college. He was a tech entrepreneur. He had created the first internet Service provider in Japan. He was a DJ. He was an investor. He knew a lot of people. He was a great networker. He was a really good fundraiser. I didn't actually do too much hand in hand with him because he liked to fundraise alone. He had a lot of connections and he was able to raise a lot of money for the Media Lab. That's why, as I say in my article, it was a bit of a mystery why he felt he needed Jeffrey Epstein's money. Because we had lots of corporate sponsors, and Joey had been able to bring in many private donors. So that was kind of one of the enduring mysteries why um, he would stick with Epstein over the years.
1: Was there a certain weird charisma that surrounds somebody
2: who's famous for all the wrong reasons? No, I mean, not in the case of Jeffrey Epstein. I don't think people were excited that he was visiting the Media Lab or was a donor to the Media Lab. Jeffrey Epstein had gone to jail. Um, What we knew at the time that I worked there was he had pled guilty to one charge and he was a registered sex offender. And as has been reported in the MIT's investigation, people felt that he had rehabilitated himself and that was it. It was only much later that all of the details about his continued criminal enterprise came out. He was a potential donor. We were under the impression that he was still giving money to Harvard because he had told us that. And it seemed like he had the potential to be a very large donor to MIT. And I think that's why people met with him, because he was in a position to support their work.
1: One of the reasons I felt so confident about your story is because everything we're talking about is described in detail in this report that was commissioned by MIT following the scandal. And the investigation was conducted by two separate law firms. And it's been made public. People can read it on the web. But I think the most shocking thing, and not everybody will read the report. They'll just read some of the sensationalistic reporting on it. But for those who read the report, it talks about how all of these factors we're describing were discussed at great length and you had three vice presidents, these are people who run the university or help run the university, and they created this scheme to take Epstein's money while also sort of being detached from that money somehow. This was done way
2: over your pay grade, and in fact, over Joyito's pay grade. Could you describe what this scheme was? Sure. And again, this was all in the MIT report, but I knew about this when I worked at MIT. So I started at the Media Lab in 2014. Back in 2013, a gift had come in from Jeffrey Epstein and it had raised some red flags. And so there was some discussion among MIT senior administration and Joey Ito about whether the Media Lab could keep that gift. And there was a lot of back and forth. And it was decided that the Media Lab could keep Epstein's donation money. It just had to be anonymous. And what that meant was, that we weren't going to list Jeffrey Epstein on a public list of donors. We weren't going to put his name on a building. We were just going to take his money anonymously. Anonymous gifts are fairly common in higher education. Some people don't want the publicity around their giving. As the MIT report said, it was unusual that the university requested that the donor be anonymous. Usually it's the donor, him or herself, who wants to be anonymous. But this had been worked out in 2013. And when I arrived in 2014, and money came in from Jeffrey Epstein, um, Joey referred me to this agreement. And that's why I like to say that in describing this situation, that there were decision makers in the case of taking Epstein's money. And that was Joey and these three vice presidents. And then there were people that had to implement the decision. And I feel that I was one of the people that implemented the decision the staff that reported to me did, but we really weren't the decision makers. Um, the decision had been made at the highest level. The
1: decision itself was so morally questionable that the implementation of it necessarily involved internal communications that just sound unsettling. Because again, it's a trio of vice presidents who decided on this this weird halfway probably unsustainable arrangement, because Epstein himself did not abide by the anonymity provisions, and he was telling the world about his donations. Because the arrangement itself was so morally dubious, any discussion of it internally, as you were typing these emails, or at least receiving these emails, did you realize that, God, this thing kind of stinks, and if anybody sees these emails, they'll know it stinks?
2: Well, I was actually copying lots of people on these emails. When the emails were reprinted in the New Yorker, which I know we'll get to, Um, It looked like it was just Joey Ito and myself emailing back and forth. But there were a lot of other people that were aware of this. What we were trying to stick to was the decision that had been made in 2013, which is that these gifts would be received quietly and anonymously. And so part of it was to make sure that when money came in from Jeffrey Epstein, the people in the central part of MIT who did the gift recording Um, recorded them according to these rules. It's, It's not as if this was some kind of rogue cell
1: operating within the institution. Right. That was the first
2: assumption in the press.
1: Not that this should make a difference, but this was before Me Too. It was before the heightened awareness about some of the
2: issues surrounding Epstein. You know, I don't know if I agree with that. I guess I would say I think the decision to take Jeffrey Epstein's money was a mistake. Harvard in 2008 figured out they shouldn't take Jeffrey Epstein's money. But what I've said is I didn't make that decision. That decision was made before I started working at MIT. It was made by three senior members of the MIT administration, three vice presidents, in correlation with with Joey Ito. And that was good enough for me. One of these vice presidents was the general counsel, Aside from the fact that maybe the president wasn't fully aware of this, I felt that this had been vetted and had been decided on, and it was my job to implement this decision.
1: One aspect of this, which it seems like a bureaucratic detail, but as we're going to see later in the interview, as you explain in the article, it's actually quite crucial. In one of the databases governing donors to the university, It was alleged that Epstein had been classified as disqualified. That's the word. And again, this is important for the discussion we're about to have in regard to the media coverage. Could you explain what that means within the idiom of the university's bureaucracy?
2: Sure. At MIT, disqualified meant unlikely to donate. That's all it meant, it didn't mean blacklisted or forbidden from donating. It meant that somebody was viewed as unlikely to donate.
1: So if I'm a billionaire and you call me or invite me to parties and after a while I just say, hey, look, I'm not making any charitable donations to universities. Stop calling me. Would that make me disqualified?
2: Yes, we'd probably mark you as disqualified so we didn't keep trying to engage you. The word might mean something different at other universities, but at MIT and at Brown, which is the most recent place where I worked, disqualified meant Unlikely to give. It didn't mean you were a bad person or a sex offender or we didn't want your money. It was just a database management tool to keep track of people who were potential donors and people who were really, no matter how many times you visited them, they were unlikely to give.
1: When this became a scandal, or at least when it became known that the Media Lab was going to come under scrutiny. Did you fear that your name would come up? Did did you have an inkling that you were going to become involved in the public eye on this sort of thing?
2: Well, it's interesting. In the summer of 2019, there was a lot of renewed focus on Jeffrey Epstein. He was arrested for a second time. He killed himself in jail, or he was killed. People are still debating this. Um, And so there was really a very strong focus on Epstein and on his victims. And so at that point, the media lab started to do a lot of internal soul searching about Epstein's visits there and his donations to the media lab. And it was possible my name was going to come up, but I had really played such a minor role that I wasn't that worried.
1: And just in case people are, think you're, you're being self-serving, the extent of your role is described, at least en passant, in the MIT report.
2: Joey Ito was the one that would ask Jeffrey Epstein for money. And then my job was to make sure that the gifts got processed and recorded correctly, which meant they were supposed to be recorded anonymously. We were out in a department, the Media Lab, and my job was to interface with MIT's Central Development Office. And development, it means money. Right. It's fundraising. And so there were some donors at MIT where I was the person who was directly asking them for money. But that wasn't the case with Epstein. My role was really kind of back office. So I assumed if my name came up, they would just say Peter Cohen was the director of development at the time, not that Peter Cohen had played an integral role in cultivating and soliciting Jeffrey Epstein, because I knew that I had not.
1: A whistleblower who brought further scrutiny and more detail to the public In regard to Epstein's donations. Unfortunately for you, that person happened to be a subordinate of yours, so the bulk of the most interesting correspondence happened to have your name on it. But just to be clear, if the story that had been reported were that Peter Cohen was in the back office helping to process donations that came in through Epstein, was processing them according to the protocols that had been worked out by three vice presidents at MIT, you acknowledge that you would have no basis for complaint about that.
2: Yeah, I mean basically the stories that came out initially as you said a few minutes ago, they sort of implied that the media lab was not supposed to be taking money from Jeffrey Epstein, that he was a banned donor. And so what Joey Ito and I were doing is we were taking money from a banned person That's what they assumed disqualified meant, the media, that it was forbidden to take money and we were taking it anyway, and then we were hiding it by making it anonymous.
1: And now a message from our commercial supporters at BetterHelp, the online counseling service that helps people everywhere become happier and more productive. At BetterHelp.com, you'll connect with your professional licensed therapist in a safe, private, online environment according to your own schedule using secure video, phone, online chat, or text. Anything you share is, of course, strictly confidential. While BetterHelp isn't a crisis line, new clients can start communicating with their counselor in under 24 hours. When self-help methods aren't enough and you seek professional counseling, BetterHelp can connect you to a network of thousands of licensed therapists. And you can switch therapists to make sure you get the right fit. Licensed counselors include specialists in sleep, trauma, family conflicts, LGBT matters, grief, and self-esteem. So many people are using BetterHelp that they're recruiting additional counselors in all 50 US states. BetterHelp is more affordable than traditional offline counseling. There's no awkward waiting room, and you can message your BetterHelp counselor at any time. Financial aid is available in some cases. Join over one million others who are taking charge of their mental health by visiting BetterHelp, that's H-E-L-P, dot com. Quillette listeners get 10% off their first month service with the discount code Quillette. Just go to betterhelp.com slash Quillette. And now back to our podcast. So this brings us to a key journalistic account of all this and because the whistleblower we've been talking about went straight to Ronan Farrow at the New Yorker. Ronan Farrow wrote an article about this in the fall of 2019 and that article focused very closely on the word disqualified as Farrow evidently misunderstood it and a fair reading of that article and again I read that article before I edited your piece, obviously long before we're having this conversation, a person who didn't know anything about the scandal would come away thinking that you and Ito were running a rogue cell within MIT that was trying to pull the wool over the eyes of others.
2: Sure, and for the first week after the New Yorker story came out, that's what people thought. They thought that no one at MIT was supposed to take money from Jeffrey Epstein, and we had done it anyway. And that was the implication of Farrow's article. But within six days, MIT admitted that this was actually a permitted activity. The president of MIT put out a statement on September 12th saying senior administrators in central MIT knew about these gifts. They had told the Media Lab they could accept these gifts, and they had asked them to make them anonymous. So even if there was confusion when Ronan Farrow wrote his article, within a week, The truth had come out. But there's another layer to this, which from what I understand
1: from the MIT report, and again, the MIT report came out in early 2020, several months later, Epstein wasn't even classified as disqualified.
2: Right. Well, that's a strange thing. Basically, as we said, if he was disqualified, that would not have meant we couldn't take money from him. It it would have meant he wasn't interested in donating, and he very much was interested in donating. Right, but that's kind of a he said, she said on whether he was disqualified. So, um, Signe Swenson was my development associate. She reported to me, and she was the whistleblower in this case. And according to Ronan Farrell, she told him that Epstein had been disqualified. The MIT investigators looked at 600,000 emails, they interviewed dozens of people, they hired a forensic analyst to look at MIT's donor database. And they concluded that Epstein had never been disqualified. As I said, disqualified just meant unlikely to give. So it's neither here nor there, even if he were listed as disqualified, because it has absolutely no bearing on a scandal. Right. But they said that he was never disqualified. Now, interestingly, buried in one of the 61 pages of the MIT report, it says that the whistleblower did not talk to the MIT investigators. And so in my back and forth with the New Yorker, they have said, well, the whistleblower told us he was disqualified. Unfortunately, she didn't speak with the MIT investigators. And so if she saw something that they didn't see in their four-month investigation, she didn't share it with them. My
1: understanding is that Swenson herself, in the days after Farrow's article appeared, she herself attempted to clarify some of the errors that Farrell made in the story, which was based on her whistleblowing. Is that true?
2: Either she told Farrell that Epstein was disqualified, or it's possible that Farrow didn't understand what she was telling him, or it's possible that Farrell packaged what she said into a more compelling narrative. But within a week, Signe was doing some other interviews. She did an interview with the MIT Technology Review, and they very openly talked about the fact that disqualified did not mean forbidden to donate to MIT.
1: I read that MIT Tech Review article, and I found it neutral and objective. It seems like there was enough information to do responsible reporting, at least
2: at the time Farrow did his report. I mean, Signey had given interviews to the MIT Technology Review, in which he explained accurately what disqualified meant. The president of MIT, Raphael Reif, put out a statement on September 12th saying senior administrators were aware of these gifts. They had given the Media Lab permission to take gifts from Epstein and the gifts had to be anonymous. So I would say within a week of the New Yorker story, the information was out there. However, everybody kept going back to the New Yorker story as the big reveal because the New Yorker and Ronan Farrow get more attention than, say, the MIT Technology Review does. Now, I want to
1: come back to this timeline in September, but one detail that's important in regard to your reputation and the anxiety that you suffered was, while your name came up repeatedly in Ronan Farrow's article, in the MIT report, although it gives a completely accurate description of your role, as I understand it, your name doesn't actually appear and
2: so wouldn't come up on a Google search. How did that happen? Well, my title does. But basically, the MIT report acknowledged that there were senior administrators in Joey and they were the decision makers. And so the decision makers were named, but kind of the middle managers that had gotten pulled into the story were not named. And so I'm not named in the MIT report. A lot of my development colleagues, both at the Media Lab and in Central MIT, are not named either. Some of our emails are included and quoted, but the real focus was on Joey and the vice presidents. And also there was an engineering professor at MIT named Seth Lloyd, who also got money from Epstein. And so there was a focus on him in the report as well, but that's kind of a separate story.
1: So again, this was a harrowing couple of months. Four months, yes. Waiting for this report to come out, And it must have been weighing on you extremely heavily. And then it's sort of bittersweet because the report is accurate and anybody who invests the time, which few will because it's such a complicated story, will know the truth. Uh, But instead, and I guess this is the curse of Google, if people enter your name in MIT Media Lab, they keep going back to the story. Uh, Tell me about your efforts and I guess your lawyer's efforts to get the New Yorker to correct what Farrow had written in September 2019.
2: The New Yorker story by Ronan Farrow came out in September. At that point, MIT was saying its investigation was going to take a month. And so my attorneys and I figured we would wait. My employer in September 2019 was Brown University, and they put me on paid administrative leave, which meant they were paying me while we were all waiting to see what MIT was going to find out. The MIT investigation dragged on for four months. The report didn't come out until January 10th of 2020. And so it was a very long wait. And during that time, the media kept beating me up. And because I was essentially being investigated by both MIT and Brown, my attorneys and I decided that we weren't gonna talk to the media even though there was so much misinformation. And a lot of that misinformation kept going back to Ronan Farrell's original article. In December, we decided, my attorneys and I, that we were tired of waiting for MIT's report. And we were going to ask the New Yorker for a correction. As I said, in September, the president of MIT had basically said, yes, senior administrators were aware of these gifts to the media lab. We had said it, it was fine for the media lab to accept these gifts and the gifts needed to be anonymous. By early September, there was enough information out there for the New Yorker to have fixed its story, but we didn't ask them to do so until December. In December, my attorney um, emailed the general counsel of the New Yorker, Fabio Bertoni, and asked him for a correction. And they said they stood by the story and they weren't going to make one. We then proposed that perhaps the New Yorker would run an update. They had updated their story on September 7th when Joey Ito resigned, so we said, You can just say there's new information that we didn't have when we wrote this story, still no interest in that.
1: By the way, update would be charitable. Update is essentially correcting an erroneous impression that the article clearly gives. And I find it telling that they were quite happy to update the article in order to serve up a trophy to Pharaoh, saying, oh, look, Joyito resigned. So obviously— they can update stories if they want to. In your case, however, obviously it didn't
2: suit their purposes. And as you said, anyone that googles me keeps going back to that story. That's the first thing that comes up, and so it would have been nice to have a correction or an update at the top of the story, saying Jeffrey Epstein was not disqualified. It was not forbidden for the Media Lab to take his money, etc. But even after MIT's report came out in January, I communicated with three people at The New Yorker. I communicated with Ronan Farrow himself. I communicated with Ronan Farrow's fact checker, Sean Lavery, who Farrow introduced into the communication with me. And then in June, I also sent an email to the editor of the thenewyorker.com. Each time they kept saying they stood by the story, they didn't feel that a correction or an update was necessitated, However, if I wanted to do an on-the-record interview in which I would tell them some more things, then they would be happy to talk to me. But they didn't see any reason to correct their story, even in the face of the information that came out in September and even in the face of the immense amount of information that came out in January when MIT issued its 61-page report. I found that baffling and frustrating And I still have to live with the fact that if you Google my name, that New Yorker story will come up, and it's still the story that was written in September. Did this tarnish your understanding of the media
1: more generally? It it seems like a maddening experience. And the irony is, of course, that Farrow has built his career on the idea of holding people accountable. But here was the New Yorker itself just essentially brushing off its mistake, which continues to exist in this article that's freely available on its website.
2: Well, you know, I had a lot of run-ins with a lot of reporters between September and January, but The New Yorker was the only venue that basically implied that they would fix their story if I would give them some dirt.
1: Right, because the idea is that you'd go on the record and the update would essentially
2: be like a new scoop for them. They specifically asked me about a specific donor to the Media Lab, and did I have any more information about that, and... At that point, I just said, people in my profession, if it's a violation of our professional ethics to talk about donors. All of the information that's out there about donors to the media lab is because of the emails that my development associate leaked. I have not told the media anything about donors myself. And that was very frustrating, but it seemed to me like, I mean, the New Yorker was just determined to protect Ronan Farrow. I would also say that I felt kind of like, how am I going to prove this? And alone in all of this. And then in May 2020, the New York Times media reporter Ben Smith ran a long article about a pattern of mistakes in Ronan Farrow's article. And that was very validating, because he basically showed that Farrow starts with some basic facts, like he did in the case of the Media Lab. And then he spins a story that sounds like a conspiracy, and it makes for great reading. His book Catch and Kill was great reading. But frequently, what Ronan Farrell writes, this is according to Ben Smith, transcends the actual facts. And I felt that this described my own situation as well. And that's when Colette and I started communicating because it seemed like at this point, it had been shown that there was a pattern in Ronan Farrell's reporting And it wasn't just me waving my arms saying, hi, I'm Peter Cohen, look at me. This was something that Farrow had done in several of his most publicized articles.
1: The New Yorker made a statement in regard to your article, although they did it indirectly after Mediaite, another website, ran an article based on the Quillette article. And could you tell listeners about what the New Yorker said in this most recent statement?
2: Yeah, the New Yorker statement, I mean, I was kind of shocked. They really doubled down on what they said in their article. They could have just said, we stand by the story. Instead, they put out a long statement. Well, I'll read it. So a New Yorker spokesperson said this to Mediaite. In his piece in Quillette, Peter Cohen confirms the New Yorker's reporting. I would say that much is a D plus for reading comprehension because my story really refutes the New Yorker's reporting. It does not confirm it. Um, Peter Cohen confirms the New Yorker's reporting, including that Cohen facilitated anonymous donations from Jeffrey Epstein, a person he knew to be a convicted sex offender. Well, that's true, but it's really beside the point. That's not the point of my story. That the Media Lab went to significant lengths to keep those donations a secret. Well, that was because the Media Lab had been instructed to do so by the MIT Central Administration, which wanted Epstein's gifts to be anonymous. Which is not included in the New Yorker article, obviously. Right. And then it says, I confirmed that the staff there objected. Well, that's true. I objected as well. Cohen writes that he was, quote, absolutely right in the thick of it, referring to Epstein's donations to the Media Lab. Well, actually, what I said was I was right in the thick of it um, when it came to the back office processing of those donations. So I actually think that's extremely misleading. And then they conclude Cohen's claim that Epstein was not listed as a disqualified donor is contradicted by Signe Swenson, a former development associate at the lab. So they don't actually say it was true. They just say that Signe Swenson said that. And then it ends with, we stand by the story. So the New Yorker statement doesn't address the substance of my article. It doesn't mention the MIT report at all. And that MIT report contradicted the New Yorker story. And it says that Swenson was more reliable than a four-month investigation um, at MIT.
1: You've written this long and detailed account for Quillette about what actually happened. Do you hold out any hope
2: that in the future, the New Yorker will correct the record? Yeah, I hold very little hope, especially after this statement that they gave to I I found this statement outrageous. It didn't sound like something that a dignified journalistic enterprise would say. This statement was an attempt to misrepresent what I wrote and to smear me by connecting me to a quote unquote convicted sex offender. I was shocked that the New Yorker would put out this statement. And it seems that it goes way beyond we stand by the story. They are going to fight me on this, it's clear. I don't know why, and I don't know what they're doing behind the scenes, and I don't know if they're investigating Pharaoh's um, stories and looking at them more carefully, but publicly they are doubling down. I can't imagine the New York Times putting out a statement like this. Yeah. It's lengthy, it's inaccurate, it manipulates my story, and it manipulates the truth. I was really surprised to see this statement. I've shared this statement with a few reporters, and they have been surprised that the New Yorker would put out a statement like this as well.
1: Your story continues to have a sort of afterlife on the web, as many of these controversies do. Am I right that to this day there's some petition on the web
2: to further punish you? Well, the petition actually came out back in September. As I said, Brown University, which was my employer when this story broke, put me on paid administrative leave so they could investigate. A couple days later, a petition came out I found out about it from a reporter from the Providence Journal who called me. Um, the Providence Journal read a story that said fire Brown fundraiser for Roland Epstein's hidden donations. Apparently, two Brown alumni, a woman named Alexa Van Hatum, who identified herself as a doctoral student at Cornell now, and a graduate of Brown named Sam Heft-Luthie, who identified himself as a Google employee Wrote this petition. That's what the Providence Journal article said. And it basically said I should be fired. The petition did a couple of things. One is it relied on the New Yorker article, which was inaccurate. And second, it really went way beyond the New Yorker article in some of the outrageous claims it made about me. And so this was way back in September. Like I said, things didn't get resolved until January. But for four months, there was this petition out there signed by 110 alumni, and it basically said that I should be fired because of the terrible things that I had done. A recent New Yorker story calls particular attention to the work that Cohen did to perpetuate and hide Epstein's extensive funding relationship with the MIT Media Lab. It accused me of explicit obfuscation. It said... I did this even though Epstein was disqualified, which was again picking up on Farrow. It said I repeatedly coordinated contact between Epstein and the rest of the media lab, which I didn't do. It was just full of inaccurate information. It's sitting out there. It was sent to the president of Brown University, and it was sent to the Providence Journal, and it basically said that I should be fired. And, you know, people talk about cancel culture And I didn't feel that MIT or Brown was trying to cancel me, but when you are on paid leave and being investigated by your employer, and 110 people that you don't know sign a petition saying you should be fired, I mean that is cancel culture. Interestingly, 32 of the people that signed the petition identified themselves as working at Google. I was very surprised that Google would um, allow or encourage its employees to sign a petition and saying someone should be fired. And indicate that they worked at Google. I would just like to read one sentence. Someone named Elon Sachs, who signed the petition and also said he worked at Google, he actually wrote a comment with his signature, and he wrote, I led the entrepreneurship program while at Brown and mentored students' entrepreneurs, many of whom study computer science at Brown. For the protection of our students and values, as well as the broader community, please take action. So basically, his statement was saying that, you know, the students at Brown University need protection from me. I was a mid-level administrator. I didn't even work on campus. Our building was off campus. This was just outrageous and It was clearly an effort to get me fired at a time when my conduct was being investigated by my employer.
1: Well, I'm sorry for all you've endured, but I thank you for sharing your story, both on the Quillette website and here on this podcast. Peter Cohen's July 6, 2020 story is entitled Jeffrey Epstein's Money Tainted My Workplace, Then Ronan Farrow's Botched Reporting Trashed My Reputation. Mr. Cohen, thank you for appearing on the Quillette podcast.